I love when things get very real and not, not, I love that she did that, honestly. So, hey, if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. And while you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to fill you in on a couple things. One, we would love to know that you were here. And so if you can jump on the app uh, or somehow uh, let us know that you were here through Uh, the online connect card. That would be wonderful. Uh, It allows us to track who's here, how we can meet your needs. If you have something, you have a question about something, we can uh, fill you in that way. Second thing is this. Last week, we had a congregational meeting, and uh, that took place after our third service. And the purpose of that meeting was to get congregational approval uh, to partner with an organization known as the Isaiah 117 House. Isaiah 117 is a foster care. uh, it, It works with foster care. They build a home, and when kids are taken from their Uh, their home before being placed in a foster care home, they have a place to stay that's not a DCS office. We have 40 acres of land, and the proposal was to give them uh, three quarters of one of those acres so they could build this house. And so we prayed about it. It went to the elders. The elders were unanimous. went to elders and deacons together. It was unanimous, and then we brought it to the congregation. And I'm happy to tell you that as of last Sunday, it was 100% unanimous, yes, Uh, we will be partnering with them in building the Isaiah 117 house uh, right here on our church property. So we're very excited for that. Yes, you can clap. I'm praising God for the ministry they're doing and that we get to partner with them. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the, the sermon today. Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. God, I thank you for the worship. I thank you for this church. I love these people. I love being here every Sunday morning gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is such a gift And God, as we turn our attention now to your word, I pray that you would speak clearly to us through the power of your spirit that is alive in each of us that follow Jesus. I pray that you would speak to us clearly. And we ask you for that in his name. Amen. Many of you will remember January the 13th, 2012. Now I say that date and you probably are like, no, I don't remember it. But you will remember what took place on January the 13th, 2012, because it was on that date in Italy that the Costa Concordia cruise ship ran aground capsized, and eventually sank, costing 32 people their lives. It was a devastating uh, event that took place, and it grabbed not just uh, national attention there, and not just here, but it was global. I mean, this news was everywhere for quite a while. And one of the reasons, among many, that this, uh, this story grabbed the attention of the entire world was when the news of the uh, ship's captain broke. And apparently... Uh, this captain of this Costa Concordia cruise ship uh, ab- aborted. He, ju- he jumped off. He abandoned ship and was able to get himself to safety prior to making sure everybody else was safe. And then 32 people lost their lives on the shipwreck. He abandoned ship. He put his own interests above the interests of the people that he was sworn to protect. And it struck a nerve with the whole world. And then I wondered Why? And I think the reason why is because when we see selfishness displayed, there's something in us that we're we're repelled against it. We don't like it. We don't. There's something in us that is so bothered when we see selfishness. And here's the thing. We do it every day ourselves. Like we're all selfish. And we make decisions that are selfish. And we do things that are selfish. And yet when we see it displayed in someone else or we're living with the consequences of our own selfishness, there's something deep inside of us that just has a problem with it. We don't like selfishness. Contrast that with the event that took place on January the 15th, 2009, almost exactly three years prior to the shipwreck was a different event. And you're like, okay, well, I don't remember that date either. But you'll remember the event that took place on this date, January the 15th, 2009. 
Because on that day, a flock of Canadian geese flew into U.S. Airways Flight 1549 shortly after it took off from LaGuardia Airport in New York, causing complete engine failure and the loss of power altogether. Quick decisions needed to be made, and ultimately, that decision was that they needed to land this plane as soon as possible. They were not going to make it back to the airport, and so they had a decision to make, and they ultimately landed that airplane on the Hudson River in New York. This became known as the Miracle on the Hudson. Now, what was fascinating about the story and what took global attention is, one, when Tom Hanks plays you in a movie, you're doing all right, right? But (laughs) was the captain. That's why the movie was named after him. That's who captivated our attention. Chesley Sullenberger was the captain's name. And what captivated us about him was, yes, he made some very quick decisions. He had to make decision after decision. And when the, the geese fly into the end, you lose all power. You've got all these different people on board, and you're responsible for their lives, and you have to make this decision. We're going to land this thing on a river. That's pretty incredible. But what captivated us even more than that, I think, was what took place after the plane successfully landed. See, on an airplane, many people have to exit through the back and the front to safely get off of the aircraft. One person thinking the wisest thing would be is to get everybody off the back of the aircraft as quick as possible would be to open that back door, and that's exactly what they did. And as they opened that back door, the water just rushed in. And safely, they got every single person off of that airplane. But it wasn't until Sully, who the pilot is affectionately known as, walked that airplane all the way down, not once, but twice, as water was running waist high, He was offered to get off the airplane once before everybody else got off, and he refused. And what captivates us when we hear something like that, why he was called a national hero, why a movie was made that was named after this guy is because he put the interests of everybody else over and above his own. In a moment where selfishness was at his reach and he could have grabbed onto it, he denied it and decided instead to put the lives of those he was sworn to protect over and above his own walked the aisle two different times before getting off, making sure every single person was off that aircraft. And we're drawn to it. He's a hero. Because there's something deep inside each of us that when we hear of selflessness, we are drawn to it. When we hear of the person that can put the interests of other people over and above their own, we are drawn to that, and it captivates us. And it should. I would say we were created to be that way. In fact, the Bible speaks really clearly to this. Jesus himself, you remember what Jesus said of himself? He said, my whole goal in coming, Jesus, this is his words. I came, I came to serve, not to be served, and to give my life as a ransom for many. I mean, that's what Jesus said of himself. I think perhaps one of the best illustrations of this selfless ethic that you see throughout the pages of Scripture would be found in Paul's letter to a small church in a town called Philippi. Now, just for a little bit of background, that's not the text we're studying this morning, uh, but the town of Philippi was composed mostly in that day of retired Roman soldiers. It was a Roman colony, a Roman province. They had all the rights and privileges of Rome. Citizenship, rights, and privileges mattered to them so much. As a matter of fact, that phrase that you've heard multiple times, climb the social ladder, birthed out of Philippi. You put everything above You would never put anything above your own interests. You did everything it took to advance your career, to advance your family, to advance the honor that your family had. You did whatever it took. There was no expense too high to make sure that you got what you wanted. And then Paul plants a church right in the middle of that selfish culture. And he writes them this letter. And in this letter, he writes these powerful words about how a Christian should live in the middle of a very self-centered culture. And he says this, Therefore, and this is chapter 2, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, meaning if Jesus has made a difference in your life, you're really walking with him and you know him intimately, then make my joy complete by what? By being like-minded, having a unity in the church, having the same love, again, being united, being in one spirit and one mind. And then he drops this bomb on a selfish culture and says this, those who follow Jesus should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, in humility, we value others, what? Above ourselves. Not looking out to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, unfortunately, if we were actually to live this way, we would stand out pretty, pretty much in our culture. We would be really different. It'd be weird, right? If you saw a group of people that were all about serving other people, that were all about putting the interests of others above themselves in every situation they could, man, that would look a lot different than the world that we live in today, wouldn't it? I mean, what, imagine how your life would change if that really became something you wanted to, man, I need to make sure that the goal of my life is twofold. My life, no matter what I have, no matter what I've been given, no matter what I experience, is for the benefit of other people and the advancement of God's kingdom. That's my life. So you have your money. And you've worked hard for your money. And you've earned money. And God's blessed you with the skills to go to work to earn that money. And you make money. And your view of money is it's not mine. I'm being asked to take care of what God has given to me. And the goal of my money, the goal of whatever amount of money I have, is to bless other people and advance God's kingdom. Or your time and your gifts, spiritual gifts, physical gifts, abilities that he's given you. You said, my, the goal of every kind of gift. In fact, I would argue to say, I don't think you can find a teaching in the Bible that says that spiritual gifts are, are for anything other than the benefit of other people. They're always for serving. God gives you a gift or an ability. He expects you to use that to serve and love other people and to advance his kingdom. It would stand out. What if I viewed my relationships this way? So whether I have a coworker, a friend, right? Whether I have a brother or a sister or a mom or dad or a child or my spouse. And I say the goal of this relationship is to serve this person with everything that I've got for the advancement of God's kingdom and the work he's doing in their life. I mean, it would change everything. And I think this is what Paul's getting at. He knows we are drawn, drawn to selflessness. And we push back against selfishness because God created us to serve and love other people. And I think this is what Paul's getting at when he writes the letter to the church at Corinth. They too lived in a culture that was completely wrapped up in themselves. And they had freedom to do whatever they wanted. I mean, they, I mean the, the selfishness that was available to them at just an arm's reach was unbelievable. They could do what they wanted, say what they wanted, pursue what they wanted. And then Paul plants a church. And these young Christians are faced with a difficulty. And if you'll remember last week, one of the difficulties was the sexual promiscuity that was going on all around them. And so Paul introduces to them and reminds them of the way a Christian should live, the way a Christian should approach this. And he said, sex, a Christian view of sex, is that it's reserved for a covenant relationship, one man, one woman, for a lifetime. And anything outside of that is not permissible for a Christian. But inside of that covenant relationship, a sexual relationship is about the benefit of the other person. It's about giving of your whole self to the person you're in covenant with. That's what it is. And he said these words, if you remember this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, do you not know then that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you that you were given him by God? You are not your own. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 
He says, God has done so much for you, and to honor him with your bodies meant than to give, not to take. That's what it meant. It always is about giving and not taking. So as we get started today, I want to make sure that we have that in mind. Keep chapter 6 in mind, because it flows right into chapter 7. But chapter 7 gives us this fascinating verse that really becomes the thesis of the whole chapter, really chapter 6 and 7. It's the heartbeat of what Paul's trying to say, and it provides context for us. So we're going to do something a little confusing. We're going to jump ahead just for a moment, and I'm going to give you that verse. And then we're going to go back, and we're going to study marriage. And then next week, based on that same verse, we're going to look at singleness, what it means to be single and live as a Christian as a single person. It's different than what the culture tells us, right? The Bible describes singleness as a gift, and we're going to talk about that next week. But this week, he talks about marriage. And the central verse that becomes the umbrella over our understanding of a Christian marriage is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever... God has called them. If you're someone who underlines or highlights, you can't recommend enough, looks like to live in that particular season or circumstance as a believer of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 1. Now for the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual morality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. 
It's extremely important to understand when you read a passage like this, a little bit more about the context. Paul is speaking to a very specific situation in a specific time to a specific church. Okay? The, the church in Corinth, you got to remember, they're about three years old. Okay? This is a very secular city. It's a very wild city. A lot was available to them, and they're living fully in that city. And then Paul shows up and plants a church. And many of them became Christians, and a church is born. And the church begins to grow. And what the, as they grew, the questions they began to wrestle with were, hey, this couple, the husband became a Christian, but the wife didn't. Or the wife became a Christian, and the husband didn't. How, are they supposed to still have sexual relations in this marriage? Should they separate? How are they supposed to view marriage? We're new to this. We, and he's not a Christian, but she is. And so he's speaking into that specific situation. And yet what he teaches about marriage, if you pull it back, can apply to marriage as a whole, but you can't lose sight of the fact he's speaking to a specific situation. So keeping that in mind, we read here that Paul uh, walks through what it means to be married to somebody. He gives them, said, let me remind you about what marriage is. Let me give you a couple little pointers here. Now, Paul himself was single at this time, so he easily could have played to that. He easily could have said, you know what? I think you guys are right. Everyone should be single. Marriage is off limits. That's super weird. Don't do that, right? And he didn't. On the flip side, he grew up in, he grew up in a very conservative Jewish culture and a very conservative Jewish family that valued marriage, and he could have gone the other direction and said, no, marriage is most important. You can't be single, and he didn't do that. What he did was brilliant. He, he walked a tightrope between the two, and what he did was he taught, hey, as a Christian, whatever situation you're in, here's how you need to live. And he did it in such a way to stop people, I think you get from this text, stop people from idolizing marriage or singleness for more than what it actually is. Paul put it in its proper place. He says, now if you're married as a believer in Jesus, here's how you should live. This passage, unfortunately, has been butchered by way too many people. And it's really disheartening, to be honest with you. Many people in church have read through 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and they make it what it's never intended to be. They've taken 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and they make it this text that allows somehow a husband to be more important than a wife. And it's like they, they come to, and even recently in the news, this was in the news, 1 Corinthians 7, for a, a completely butchered sermon. And it's not fair to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4 has been taken. The wife no longer has control of her own body, but she yields it to her husband. And then they stop. And they just talk. It's like, are you kidding me? Keep reading the rest of the same verse that you're reading. The rest of the exact same verse that you're reading says, and likewise, there's a mutuality in marriage. He says, and likewise, a husband doesn't own his own body anymore either. He's in a covenant relationship with his wife. And the purpose of that covenant is to fully give of oneself to the other person. And it goes both ways, not just one way. It's fascinating to me that the apostle Paul he brings out of this text a mutuality in marriage. Now, he's, let me be very like, careful to say this the right way. Paul is not saying that there's not a distinction in role between man and woman. Because the Bible is clear about that. But what he is saying is there is no distinction between worth and value. There's no distinction between worth and value between husband and wife. There are roles. The Bible's clear about that. The husband has a certain role in the family. The wife has a certain role in the family. But they work together. And they care for one another and they serve one another. There's a mutual love and care for each other that Paul brings out here. He says, so what you can't do is use sex as a way to get what you want in the marriage. That's what he's saying. You can't go into the marriage and say, okay, well, I'm upset with you, so we're not going to sleep together. Right? And then you can't, you can't say, oh, well, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. Or I'm upset. I'm mad. What? So we're not. He says, you can't do that. 
Because sex is not selfish. Sex in the marriage relationship is about giving, not just taking. And yes, there's a satisfaction that comes with it, but it's about pouring yourself out for the benefit of the other person. It's about serving. It's about selflessness, not selfishness. And he says, and, and moreover, if you decide for a period of time that the two of you need to get stronger spiritually and you decide, hey, for a little bit of time, we're not going to have sex because we, we want to focus so much on God. He says, you can do that, but don't do it for long because Satan is a genius and sex is his favorite tool. And it's wreaked havoc on marriages and families. He's coming. And so what he says is, having a healthy sex life, meaning, meaning both husband and wife are giving, 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 serving, 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 is a way to protect your marriage from the enemy. Now this brought me in my mind to a more theological understanding of what Paul has to say about marriage when he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul lays out a little bit more about marriage that will enhance our understanding of 1 Corinthians 7. And he says this to the church at Ephesus. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I mean, you could just stop there. Oftentimes people love to keep going in this passage, but we overlook the, look how heavy that is. Submit to what? One another. Both of you. Why? Because you love Jesus so much because you're revering him, because you're coming from a place of worshiping all that he's done for you, and so I want to give of myself to my spouse. There's so much packed into that one verse. He keeps going. So what does that mean? He says, well, wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And so unfortunately, people stop reading there. As if the whole burden of a healthy marriage is on the wife. Come on, keep reading the passage. He says, you're, you're to submit to your husband's leadership, but your husband's leadership should look like this. Husbands, love your wives. You want to know how to lead in a marriage? Jesus says, lead like Jesus, who loved his bride, the church. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave, didn't take, gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Down in verse 33, he finishes this way. He says, however, each one of you must, all, must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. What Paul is saying here, what he says is that marriage is not just some social duty. You see, in their day, they got married back then in order to fulfill a social obligation so you weren't an outcast. It's not even primarily, he's saying, a way of satisfying yourself. I mean, that's a part of it, but that's not the main reason why you get satisfied. He says marriage is wonderful, but it is a very, very long journey. And here's why. Each of us was created in God's image. God created every single person in this room in his own image. But because of our sin, right, we're not actually fully becoming who he created us to be. We're, we're, not, we're not who he created us to be because of our sin. Now in Christ, we can become who he's created us to be, but we're still always working on that. and We're always wrestling and struggling with our sin. Let me give you an analogy. Some might, you might picture this as like an acorn, your life like an acorn. And this acorn is completely smothered and covered in dirt and grime. All the sin and the difficulty that we've ever wrestled with in our lives that is somehow preventing us from growing. And in Christ, the only way that we're actually going to grow, the only way that we're actually going to become what we were intended to become apart from that is through repentance and through walking and understanding the grace that is available to us in Jesus. 
And what Paul is saying is this. If you choose to go through that process of becoming more and more like Jesus for the rest of your life, and you choose to do that with another person in the marriage relationship, just know this, it won't be easy. Because now you've got two people that are becoming more and more like Jesus constantly, needing to repent, needing to grow, needing to become more, and they're trying to do that together. And make no mistake, it's going to be hard. There is no sentimentality with Paul in this. This is not some Hallmark movie. Paul is saying this is hard work. Marriage is going to be difficult. It is so worth it, and it's incredible, but we have to have the right view of it if we're going to move forward. Stanley Hauervoss was a professor at Duke University, and he describes this whole dilemma in our culture this way. He says this, equally destructive as the moral obligation approach to marriage, that you have to do it for your social status, is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and family are primary ways of personal happiness. The assumption is that there is someone that's just right for us to marry, and that if we would just look closely enough, we will find that just right person. This overlooks a crucial fact, and that fact is this. You will always marry the wrong person. We never know whom it is that we marry. We just think that we do. And even if we do marry the right person, just give it a little while, and then he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we will not be able to stay the same person after entering into it that we were before. Marriage, the marriage relationship, changes us. Now, we cannot know who our spouse is going to become as they continue to grow. We can't know that. And so the great challenge, according to Hauervoss, is this. Learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Lewis Smedes is a well-known minister, and he said it this way. He said, my wife, as an older man looking back on his life, he said, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we got married, and every single one of them was me. <laughs> every single one of them was me. It's a journey, and it's a hard journey, and Paul is warning them. If you're in a marriage relationship, it's going to be difficult, but it's so worth it. It's a beautiful thing, but it is a process of growing and learning and becoming more. And man, I've found that to be so true in my life. Sarah and I have been married for 15 years, and I have found it to be so true that she's a saint. <laughs> she, is. she is. She has put up with so many different versions of me in 15 years as I've tried so hard to continue to grow and to become more and more like Jesus. And she's had to really be patient. And I've had to do the same for her. I just think she's had to have a lot more of that patience because <laughs> I find her to be more like Jesus than I am. And that's the process. It's, this, it's a beautiful process, but man, it's not always easy. Keeping that in mind, I want to reread our passage, these verses that we just walked through. But I want to reread them in, in Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message kind of brings it to common language, and I just appreciate the way he translated this. He said this, now, getting down to the question that you asked in your letter to me, first, is it, good, is it a good thing to have sexual relationships? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. And read that verse again. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage, healthy marriage, is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality, the husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. 
Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it, and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not understand commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you choose them. So if you understand this view of marriage then, right, this view of marriage, you're looking for someone who's becoming more and more like Jesus so you can serve one another together, then you know that you're not looking for a finished sculpture, just a really good block of marble. That's what you're looking for in a spouse. See, when you fall in love with somebody, you shouldn't be falling in love with just what they are in that moment. Instead, you should be excited about their future. You should be attracted to the relationship they have with God and who God is creating them to become. And you can't fully see it, but you know they're going to continue to grow and they're going to continue to become more. In other words, I would say it this way, the falling in love in a Christian way is to say, I'm excited for your future. I want to be a part of getting you there. I want to, I'm signing up for the whole journey. Whatever that looks like, I'm in. I want to be a part of that. Would you sign up for that journey that I'm on to become my true self in Christ? It's going to be hard, but I want to get you there. That future orientation, that future orientation is what it's about. And in 15 years of marriage to my wife, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, she has made me become more like him. But it's not been easy. There's many marriages where that hasn't taken place. And I would just pause to tell you this. You think, man, well, I've already messed that up. We've been married for 30 years and I've messed it up, Rob. I haven't been living that way. What am I going to do? Or I've already been in this relationship. I've already gone too far. And I'd say it's never too far. It's never gone too long to start serving and loving your spouse the way that Jesus wants you to do that. And to say that you're beyond help is to tell Jesus that what he did on the cross isn't powerful enough for your situation. You really want to do that? What Jesus did on the cross, resurrecting from the dead, is powerful enough to fix any marriage. And to tell him that it's not, it's to question. It's to question what the resurrection was all about. Now, Paul transitions here in verses 8 through 16, and he talks about divorce and widows and what do they need to do. I'm going to read through it, but I want you to bear with me. Let me read through it. He says this. Now, the unmarried and the widows, I say this, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, it's better translated if they are not controlling themselves, meaning they're already being in the middle of this sexual temptation, then they should get married because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. More on that next week. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would not would be unclean, and as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether, you will, whether or not you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether or not you will save your wife? Now, remember, he's speaking to a specific situation. And our sermon today is not about this, but I do want to clarify this. What Paul is not saying in this passage is that there are no grounds at all ever for a biblical divorce. There are. There are. The Bible is clear. There are grounds for divorce within a marriage. But here's what I want to say to that. In the culture that makes it way too easy to do that, the Bible is clear that it grieves God's heart. The Bible is clear that it must not be entered into lightly and that it must, on all circumstances, be taken very seriously. 
What he's telling these Christians is, hey, if you find yourself now as a believer married to an unbeliever, don't quit on that. You can't leave. You got to keep working hard at that. That's not one of the grounds to run. If you're abandoned, then you're free. That's fine. But if you're in this relationship, you need to continue to follow Jesus. He's speaking to a specific situation in this moment. And then he gets us to verse 17, which is our thesis verse again. He says, so if you're in that situation where you find yourself single or you're in a a, a healthy marriage, wherever you find yourself, remember to live as a believer in whatever situation or circumstance you find yourself as the Lord has assigned to you, as God has called you to do. Work at it. Make yourself more and more like him by serving the other person. What would it look like if we decided to do that? What would it look like in our marriages instead of getting upset and angry and using the physical part of our relationship against one another? What if we actually talked? What if instead of behaving like we were frustrated, we actually said, I'm frustrated. You hurt me. We need to walk through this. I made some mistakes and I'm sorry. I need to repent. I need to put your interests above my own. And I haven't been doing that for a really long time and I'm sorry. And I'm not just going to put words to it, but I'm going to start showing you that you're more important to me than me. I'm going to start showing you that I can serve you for the rest of my days. I'm going to show you that I can repent of all the mistakes that I've made in the past and I can allow the the resurrection of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life to change me into the man that I'm called to be or the woman that I'm called to be. What would that look like? What would it look like in a culture if a bunch of Christians decided our marriages will be a model to a really grieving and broken world of what it looks like to love and serve one another? Let me close this way. Robertson and Muriel McQuilkin met on the campus of the Bible college that they attended, Columbia Bible College. It's a long time ago. And he writes about how he was fascinated by her. He would watch her play with her hair with her fingers. She would twirl her hair with her finger. He said, I just, man, I was completely enthralled by her. And so he approached her and they began talking and eventually dating. And then on Valentine's Day in 1948, he proposed to her. And then in August of that year, they got married. They finished school and began their ministry together, raising six children, moving around while he was teaching, and she had an artistic wit about her. She was an incredible storyteller, and so she would compliment his ministry the way that the the Bible describes you compliment one another, and and she would do that through storytelling in his ministry. They moved to Japan for 12 years as missionaries, and then uh, things began to change for them 12 years after they were in Japan. He got a call in 1968, and they decided to move back to the U.S. so he could be the president of their alma mater, Columbia Bible College or Columbia International University. And so he took that ministry and decided to be the president of that university. And she came in, and she would teach at women's conferences, and she would uh, lead Bible studies, and she would uh, do all kinds of things, again, to complement that ministry. And together, they were quite the team developing all kinds of friendships and relationships. The college, all the students loved them. They just had this incredible way about them, the two of them. Things began to change, though, in 1978. When Muriel began to forget things, she was telling people. This wit, this storytelling that she had began to get lost a little bit. She would repeat stories that she had just got done telling. It was three years later, 1981, that she's diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Robertson describes it this way. As the next few years went by, he watched helplessly as his fun, creative, loving partner slowly faded away. Muriel knew she was having problems, but she never understood that she had Alzheimer's. One thing about forgetting is that you forget that you forgot, so she never really seemed to suffer too much. She found it more than difficult to express herself, though. She stopped speaking in complete sentences, relying on phrases and words only, though she continued to recognize her husband and children. She lived in happy oblivion to almost everything else. 
So by 1990, after wrestling through this for almost a decade, Robertson knew he had a decision to make. He had a very successful career at this point as the president of a, a Bible college that was thriving. Students and faculty and teachers that loved him, but he knew that they needed him 100%, and now his wife needed him to be there 100% as a caretaker. So he made the decision to step down as the president of Columbia International University and no longer be the president there and retire early. And what I found beautiful was the letter that he wrote became a speech that he gave to the university. I want to read you a part of that. His words. Recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time that she is with me and almost none of the time that I'm away from her. It is not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me she needs me now. Full time. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there's more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit, her tough resilience in the face of continued distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. See, 1 Corinthians 7, to me, it's a reminder to the Christians in that day and every follower of Jesus since that marriage is about a mutual love and a submission to one another it's modeling to the world what they're desperate to see in their selfishness. What does it look like to be truly selfless? It's a picture of Christ in the church. And like every other gift, every other gift that we've been given, it's always about the benefit of the other and the advancement of the kingdom. Because after all, discipleship is about becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of marriage. I do, and I know that's a hard prayer to pray in the room with so many people, as many have walked through seasons of difficulty and pain. But God, I do thank you for it. It is a beautiful gift. Father, I thank you that you have called us to live in such a way as to model for a broken and hurting world what it looks like to sacrificially love and care for one another. Father, I, I care so deeply about the couples in this church, and I just pray a blessing over the marriages represented here, one that you would bring about peace as they begin to serve one another, that we would dedicate ourselves for the rest of our lives to outserve one another, and we would model for this community and ultimately this world what it looks like to be a part of your kingdom and your family. God, as we long for the day, for that great marriage in heaven, when we get to be with you, you give us the strength to endure in a very heavy and difficult world to live in now the strength that we need to represent you. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for communion and share a story with you that I read recently about a couple who were getting married, and uh, the wife 
on the day of the wedding was all dressed up and had gone through all, you know, the hair, the makeup, the dress, and the dress was tight and it was uncomfortable as can be. And she just needed to get through the ceremony. And as she's walking uh, through the church building at the time, they went through this fellowship hall area where they'd have the reception. And as hungry and tired as she was, as many of you brides know you get on the course of a day like that, she saw some of the hors d'oeuvres that were there for the people after the reception. And she thought, I just, I'm going to eat a little bit. And so she began to eat uh, crackers and a little bit of the cheese ball and the sausages, all kinds of hors d'oeuvres. And it was, it was, she just felt so much better, replenished. Well, as the back doors open, they begin to walk down the aisle. She starts to not feel so good. And as everybody uh, recounting this said, she started to look just a little bit off. And she made it all the way up the aisle before she completely hosed her soon-to-be husband, vomited all over him, like exorcism style, <laughs> all over the floor. I mean, everything. There was people like sliding. It was bad. It was this horrible situation all over the dress. And it's just this difficult situation. You're like, man, it would be the worst situation ever. And what I found even more funny was that every year, the bridal party meet up and they watch the video of it over and over again. (laughs) They have dinner and they laugh and they talk about it. And you're like, why in the world would they do that? They said, because we can laugh about it. Because at the end of the day, the bride always gets the groom. That's communion. And no matter how messy and difficult frustrating life has been. Man, it just feels like it's just a mess everywhere, right? And you come into this room this time of the service every single week, and we're just reminded that no matter how dark and no matter how difficult it's been, the bride, the church, always gets to the groom because of what the groom did for the bride. So as we partake of communion together, remember that. This moment is about remembering all that Jesus has done for us. And the hope we have that one day we'll get to be with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the hope we have in that great marriage in heaven. God, we long to be with you. But until that day, would you give us the hope that we need during this time of communion to remember that no matter how messy and difficult life gets, you are with us and you've provided for us and you love us deeply. And Father, it is with that truth in our hearts that we partake this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.